to the Golden Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson, and I'm here with Alyssa Polizzi. Today, we are exploring the heroine's journey and the emerging mythic themes of the feminine in myth, fairy tale, and modern time. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kayleen Asbo, who is a cultural historian, musician, writer, and teacher who weaves music, myth, psychology, history, and art with experiential learning. So today, Kayleen will be presenting some themes of the heroine's path, and that will be followed by an audience Q&A. Um, so at that time, I will ask you to please throw your questions for Kayleen into the chat, and then we'll call on you to ask your question during the Q&A portion. Now, this event is going to be recorded and posted on YouTube and other streaming apps. So if you don't want to be on camera or have your voice captured, just let us know when you ask your question and we'll read it for you. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Kayleen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thank you, Alyssa. I'm delighted to be with you. Wonderful. And now I think it's wonderfully serendipitous that we're talking about this theme today because tonight's going to be the Academy Awards. And some of the themes that I found, I found by asking the question, you know, what is the modern heroine's journey? And so about 10 years ago, I looked at all of the best actresses of the Academy Awards, and I was shocked with some of the themes that I found. Wonderful. We'd love for you to walk us through uh, your version of the heroine's path and to explore some of those themes today. Great. So I'm going to do just a very compressed version of this. I actually have monthly workshops on developing these themes, these maps, and looking cross-culturally at myths um, going back 3,000 years to Inanna, for example, um, as well as looking at modern events. Like there were some of the themes that came up during the recent inauguration and Amanda Gorman that were amazing. Um, but I'm, what I'm going to do today is sketch out some of the stepping stones. And we're going to look at both the light and the dark, uh, the, what I would call the resolved heroine's journey that leads to healing, hope, and wholeness. And then the unresolved heroine's journey that has some of the same markers, but that really is a nightmare, the dark side of things. And you'll see then, for those of you who've watched the film, that the, the uh, prediction tonight is that the best screenplay and the best actress awards will go to Promising Young Woman, which has all the hallmarks of the dark side of the heroine's journey. So we're going to uh, explore this theme now. And Alyssa, um, can you see the screen? I just want to make sure. Yep, great. Looks good. Okay, so I came up with the markers independently, as I said, as I was looking at well, what is the journey of the heroine? Because there's so much material that's been focused on Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, but the the female journey was was left out. And I want to say at the beginning that what I've realized is in the tradition of Carl Jung and depth psychology, the feminine path is not just for women. It has to do more with the, uh, the part that I would call the journey of the heart. 
And so whenever we're talking about emotional development or intuition, those things that are less dominant in the Western culture, it might be what we would call the feminine side, whether you're a, a masculine, if you're whether you're born male or female. So we could find some of the same markers, for example, if we looked at the Greek god Dionysus, who was the god of the heart and who was known as the feminine god. But we're going to explore this really quickly. And then I'll say that some of these markers, you can find some lovely material in Maureen Murdoch's book. She talks about the themes of you know, the separation, descent to the underworld, encounter with the shadow side, the theme of healing the wounded masculine, and then pointing to the healing and union of integration of opposites. And I identified all of those as well. And then there were some other themes that I identified that Sharon Blackie has written about in a recent book about the connection to earth and land, the importance of ritual and what you might call reclaiming the wild self. I know that that's the topic of Glennon Doyle's best-selling book, Untamed, for example. And all of this could be encapsulated in this beautiful image by my friend Sue Ellen Parkinson, where you have the alchemical union of the opposite sun and moon, and then this relationship with the land, and all of those are deeply important signatures. But today, what I want to point to is some of the themes that I found by really beginning to look at two things, history and the, the lives of real life heroines, and also looking at the mm. best actress nominees and, and best actress award winners and fairy tales. And I was really interested to notice how many of these movies, stories, and women in real life had this theme of deep sleep, of amnesia, of actually being in comas, of almost being buried alive. And if we look at that theme and its reverse side, we would say then that part of the journey of the feminine is the journey to wake up, to wake up after a long sleep. We're going to see that, you know, for example, Hildegard of Bingen and Teresa of Avila in real life were almost buried alive because they were thought to be dead. But we also see that as a signature um, motif in everything from aliens of hypersleep to sleeping beauty to um, to kill Bill. And then there's the struggle to speak or the inability to speak or having no voice and what it is to learn to speak in a way that people will hear you. Um, then there's the theme of dismemberment. And if we think about the, the reverse of that, what is it to remember? And in the positive journeys, the ones that lead to resolution, there is persistently this theme of remembering who you are who you really are, remembering what your journey is by connecting to the more than human world and in particular to the lost stories of the forgotten ancestors. And those are all pieces that lead to healing and union and the integration of the opposites. 
And I thought that this was so interesting to think about, you know, the heroine's journey as a collective journey towards healing and wholeness. That's one of the differences between the hero's journey, which is so often the lone wolf quest, and the heroine's journey, which is a collective journey. It doesn't happen by the only individual. In fact, as we'll see with Promising Young Woman, to be alone and isolated is actually what leads to doom. And the resolved heroine's journey are ones which become communal explorations of healing. And so I was fascinated to learn that in the ancient Greek world, they didn't believe that any healing could actually happen in the temples of Asclepius until you made an offering to the goddess of memory memory. And that's such an important part in the heroine's journey. And if we look across time in history, what we find is this erasure, this amnesia, this loss, um, and this dismemberment of the missing pieces that you see here to the left side in this painting where a feminine figure was literally dismembered and cut out to erasure. We see this in the catacombs where St. Paul is here, but Thecla's eyes are gouged out and her hand is burned off. This dismemberment where the women aren't even noticed, they're not even seen, and they're not even named in places like Raphael's School of Athens. People are often shocked to see that there are two women in this, but most of the time they go unidentified. Again, the feminine is just literally invisible in histories like this particular image in which it says Saint Barnabas and another saint, but the female saint isn't acknowledged. And we find this over and over and over along with literal dismemberment, like Catherine of Siena, whose feast day is this coming week, who after her death, her head was cut off and smuggled in a basket of roses back to Siena. And then in the real life history of figures like Anne of Boleyn and Mary Queen of Scots, who of course were beheaded. And if we look at art, it is astonishing once you have the eyes to see, to look at so many of the world's iconic images and realize that what is being portrayed is this sense of the female being dismembered, like the famous Venus de Milo. And those stories we find over and over and over in stories like the handless maiden whose father makes a deal with the devil and his young daughter then gets her hands chopped off. Or the Cinderella story in which the stepsisters cut off parts of their own bodies to fit into the shoes. And then if we look at his historically films that have been nominated for Academy Awards or Best Actress, you know, the story of True Grit ends with the young heroine having one of her arms cut off. Or this wasn't an, a, a celebrated film, but Boxing Helena is about piece by piece by piece of this figure being dismembered. And then we have stories like Kill Bill that there's dismemberment everywhere. She's in a deep coma. She wakes up after years of being in a sleep and her revenge is to go back and to dismember all of the people who created the horror of her life. We see this theme in images like this from Ex Machina, where the feminine is, there's all these body parts strewn. We find the same thing in Aliens. We find the same theme of dismemberment in Gorillas in the Mist. And then the voicelessness. Oh, there was all kinds of torture and dismemberment in The Shape of Water. But the theme of the heroine having no voice, not being able to be heard, not being able to be to speak. And that 
theme was right at the heart of the piano, which Holly Hunter won the best actress for. And here she is um, unable to speak except through her hands, through her musical playing. And yet at the end, she too has her finger cut off by her husband. That theme is so replete in things like Bluebeard. And then in The Silence of the Lambs, which lambs, which swept the Academy Awards, just look at the, the poster for this and what it conveys about the woman being silenced. And for those of you who know this film, you know, the horror, it has so many of the markers of the descent into the underworld, into the basement, into the imprisonment. But one of the things that really struck me as I was reflecting on this just this morning is that the key to Clarice Starling solving the mysteries and being able to rescue the other women who are being ritually dismembered, the key to this lies in her trading, her recovering, her traumatic memories of her childhood and offering them to Hannibal Lecter. And when she does, when she's able to recover her traumatic memories and to share them, that is the quid pro quo that he talks about that enables her to begin to solve the mystery um, and rescue the girl who is about to be murdered. So this theme of silence, of not being, not being able to speak is something that is a trope and it's so connected to the wounded masculine. And in the fairy tale, Seven Swan Brothers, the heroine has to be silent for seven years while she weaves the garment that will, will, will undo the, the evil transformation of her brothers into swans. And only at the end is she allowed to speak again. And then we find things like the little mermaid Mermaid, where again the heroine gives up her voice in order to enter into the world of men and every step that Ariel takes in the original causes her excruciating pain. We find that theme of the sleep, the deep sleep and the awakening and sleeping beauty and snow white in the myth of Psyche and Eros, we find that theme of deep sleep and, and, and awakening to your true destiny after betrayal and abandonment in the myth of Ariadne, who in some of the versions then has to die and go down into the underworld and be reborn. And we find that theme of dismemberment and rememberment in the ancient myth of Isis, who takes the dismembered masculine her husband, and with her sister Nephthys, puts it back together piece by piece by piece. And as I really thought about this deep sleep and dismemberment and rememberment, one of the themes that emerged in the positive reign was the first film of The Hunger Games. And that film in part hinges on never forgetting the people that you love. And Katniss has, has, the heroine of this, has actually fallen into a deep sleep. She goes into basically a coma state for several days where the her young, soon-to-be friend, Rue, uh, tends to her, this young African-American feminine figure, tends to her in the woods, in nature. And when she wakes out of this deep sleep, she then forms this alliance and becomes the protectress of this young girl. 
but she fails to be to be able to pre prevent the murder. And there's this extraordinary saying that moves so many people to tears when they see it, where unable to protect the young girl, the young girl is, is shot and killed. And then Katniss creates this incredible memorial. Think about that word memorial to remember. She lays her out in a field. She gives her flowers. She sings her a song. And then she does this gesture of kissing her fingers and holding it up that the whole world sees. And there's this pivotal moment where the whole culture begins to shift. And all the injustices that people have been bearing they wake up from their trance. And here is Rue, you know, decked out as sleeping beauty in the forest with the flowers. And through this act of action of ritual memorial, the world starts to change. And in the later films, as Katniss goes on her speaking tour, whenever this gesture of kissing the fingers and raising it, it becomes a memorial connecting the people from different tribes, from different districts together in such a way that the people begin to wake up from their cultural trance. We find this theme of remembrance in death also part of Queen's Gambit, that wonderful series on Netflix where the young girl who's given sleeping pills, but she, um, she, she hides them. She makes an alliance again with an African-American sister. And she also finds this unexpected ally, the custodian in the basement. And it's her lessons of integrating black and white here in the basement and learning how to see a bigger picture in the chessboard. You know, as she's studying this in the basement, she's also visualizing it as she goes to sleep on the, on the ceiling and bringing heaven and earth, the world and the upper world together. And she falls into her own chaotic decline. <clears throat> but her healing path actually involves retracing the memory of her childhood by going back to the basement by finding all the news clippings that the custodian had of remembering her and that enables her to transcend barriers to make friends in Russia. And it's it's an extraordinary revisioning of the heroine's quest. And so that theme of recovery, of recovering things that would have been traumatic experiences in childhood, and by making alliances and having other people compassionately witness that is such a huge element of the heroine's quest and the heroine's journey. And we see then in this contemporary film um, that is up for the awards tonight, the failure to do that that results in chaos and collapse. And I've just done a, a one hour webinar that's going to be uploaded to my own website. I did this with a wonderful friend of mine, Terry Ebinger, who runs a Psyche and Cinema series. But we talked about this film and how it is, it really is the dark mirror. And in the film, the main character, Cassandra, 
or Cassie, who's named after the Greek heroine who's not believed, whose speech is unacknowledged and unheeded and not listened to. She's trying to wake everybody up and she's trying to wake them up to their collective amnesia, to what they did to her best friend, which has left her brokenhearted. And that central symbol of the broken and dismembered heart um, and there are other parts of the film that have to do with dismemberment, but it's it's the dark side about what happens when collectively we do not remember, what happens when we are asleep as a culture and how re-traumatizing that is over and over and over again. So I think part at the essence of the heroine's journey is this idea of remembering and remembering what we've forgotten. And such a big part of what we have forgotten is the memory of our spiritual ancestry. And so two of the most positive films that I know that have been wildly popular that feature really strong heroines have to do with this idea of remembering our spiritual ancestry and remembering that we're part of a larger picture. So the latest Star Wars saga that focused on this character of Rey was this long journey in this trilogy with all of these themes of tending to the wounded masculine. At one point, she even heals the, the dark hero's heart and reconnects him with his parents and when he had, had shut the door and tried to forget them. She goes back and she resurrects and remembers the spiritual ancestry of the Jedi. She finds her own lineage that's woven with dark and light and remembers that. And at the end of the movie, this young, this young girl, it's her coming of age story. She didn't know who she was. She didn't even know her last name. And she claims a name that is all about remembering the larger story and those who have gone before. And we find that theme as well in the number one most successful film of all time worldwide of Avatar. And that central symbol of the tree of Ewa. And this, you know, you see here on the DVD box, the, the theme of the heroine and this play of what it is, what is our real life? What is our waking life? What is our sleeping life? And the, the healing of the wounded masculine. And so much of that is related to the ancestral tree of Awa that holds the filaments and the threads of the memory of those who have gone before. And it really is about transcending tribalism to connect with people of other tribes, but also of the more than human world with the, the plant life and the animal life. So we see the, the, those side by side, you know, the, the failed heroine's quest, which is a promising young woman who in her isolation um, is unable to, to heal and unable to make whole her broken heart because she's not able to make alliances and go beyond the sleepwalking of her world. And then the positive sides that we see from the Skywalker saga and from Avatar and even one might point to the Harry Potter 
um, had, um, films have the same theme of transcending the barriers of masculine and feminine, of animal and human, and any tribalism, and going back to remember the ancestors. And that's where the promise of hope for the future lies. And I think this is so important right now because as we're facing ecological disaster and and an ecocide, you know, what, what do we call it? We call it Mother Earth. And how can we possibly heal if we don't tend to this? And the heroine's quest and what's been cut out and lost and not acknowledged, I really do believe holds keys, holds keys for all of us to unlock a journey of the heart. Thank you, Kayleen. That was beautiful and so much depth and richness. Um, we'll spend maybe about the next 10 or 15 minutes or so just having a little bit of discussion. And I wanted to kick it off because you gave so many uh, great examples of the heroine's journey and that path in, in the development and myth and modern story. But I'm curious, how do you believe we as individuals in our everyday life can really embody the heroine consciousness? In what ways can we start to work on the remembering and the union of opposites? What a great question. I love it. And I love that your program is called the golden shadow. And so for those of, of you who don't know um, a lot of this depth psychology work, um, so much of it is this, you know, that the, the shadow is all the things that we cut off, that we lock in a closet, that we try to cut off from ourselves, and that we try to forget about ourselves. And there's good reasons why we do this. Um, it's an adaptation strategy, but from a union perspective, the well-being of the world and the well-being of the individual depends on, at some point, being willing to risk taking out that key and unlocking that closet and seeing what you have locked away. And so the phrase, you know, I think it was Robert Johnson who said, the shadow is 99% gold. And that the, the vitality, the very things that will give us renewal and energy and imagination are the things that we often try to squash and put away. So here's a couple of techniques. What is your shadow? One of the things that you can do is just write a list of all the things that you identify that you say, I am, I am this, and I am this, and I am this. And then what are you not? So if you write the list of all the things that you say you're not, that tends to be your shadow. The other thing that is a great shadow indicator is to acknowledge who drives you crazy. Who drives you absolutely crazy? Who do you have an allergic reaction to? And then going back to the theme of movies, has there been a movie that has given you nightmares? Because that can actually give you a lot of clues. And I'll just say that, you know, the, the movie that was the scariest for me that I ever saw was a movie called The Vanishing, a Dutch movie. And it doesn't have any violence on it, but, but it was about a woman who was buried alive. And at the time, you know, I was living a sweet but very small life where I was buried alive, you know, be, trying to pass as a piano teacher. And so there is, 
a whole part of myself, you know, my mystical self, my, my dreaming self that I had cut away. And I had, I actually went to a workshop with my mom, an art workshop where we were instructed to draw a self portrait and then to draw something that was a mirror that was sort of like everything that we were not. And everything that we were not turned out to have an awful lot of energy for me for creativity and reinvention. So those are ways that you could start is figuring out what your shadow is, and then to find ways creatively. And you know, this is where the arts are so great to draw a picture to write a poem, to tell a story to create a fairy tale to act it out in some way. And, you know, the concept of Jung of befriending the shadow or, or taming the dragon rather than trying to kill it. And I think you see those themes in all of the successful heroines quests. When we consider the connection to spiritual ancestry, um, as you were going through that, what came to mind to me was the fairy tale of Vasilisa and how she carries around the doll from her mother. And it's part of that kind of ancestral wisdom, the wisdom of the great mother that kind of allows her to weave through these trials. And I'm wondering how you see that symbolically, how can we carry you know, the, the doll of the ancestors, this kind of item with us and, and tap into it in our everyday life? Well, I think one of the things that has been personally incredibly important for me is to actually go back and do ancestral lineage work. Because for most of us, I think most of us in the Western world, we know maybe two generations. We could say who our grandmother and our great grandmother is, and then we have no idea. And so part of my journey was thanks again to my mom is that she did all of this work on myheritage.com. And it's just, it's a bizarre story that it turns out that there were six women that I had been lecturing on in history that I admired as my personal heroines. And it turns out that they actually are literally my grandmothers. And in one case, I was literally, I had literally slept in my grandmother's bedroom and I didn't know it. And that was a huge piece of clues that I'll be spending following the rest of my life. But for all of, for all of us, you know, to go and do the work, we have so many tools right now to find out what their stories were and, and, um, to really cultivate an imaginal relationship. One of the things that I've started doing is on the birthdays of the grandparents and on All Saints Day and All Souls Day, I set a place at the table. I tell their stories and I make their favorite foods. And like when I eat pistachio ice cream, I'm remembering my grandfather. When I'm making guacamole, I'm remembering my grandmother and making it an embodied connection. And I think that that can open up a doorway to have a richer, deeper experience. And when you remember that, when you really remember that, and you remember what, for example, all of our ancestors went through during World War II or before that, there's a, a, a gold mine of courage 
and inspiration that can come when you realize like, oh my gosh, what my grandmother endured, what they, what they had to go through, whether it's, you know, the potato famine in Ireland or, you know, the concentration camps in Germany, and then to really hold them close to your heart is such a source of inspiration. So I feel like it's important to understand that women can go on hero's journeys and men can go on heroine's journeys, but that might be kind of confusing as to like, what would it mean for a man to go on a heroine's journey? So oh, I wonder if you could describe you. what that might look like. Yeah. And aren't we living in a time right now where we're just struggling with words about even the words, what does it mean masculine and feminine and you know, so I think it's so fascinating that we're living into a time where so many people in the next generation are like, I don't want to be classified as being this or that, you know, I want to, I'm a non-binary, I'm a they, not an, a he or a she, you know, like, what is that? So part of this is a legacy from union typology. So I want to acknowledge its limitations and then speak to it and say, I am also questing for better language around this. But from the inheritance of what we have from the union tradition and from the mythological tradition, the hero's journey is very often about going out, leaving home and going out into the world. I would actually call it an extroverted quest. And one of the things that Joseph Campbell said when he said, uh, when he was asked about the heroine is the heroine doesn't have to go anywhere. She's already there. And I, I don't like that answer any more than Maureen Murdoch did. <laughs> but the part that I think may be true is that it's not about going out there. It's about going in here. It's about going into one's inner depths. So this year of the pandemic, when we've been confined, you know, we could reframe that, you know, and I'm just be curious, how many of you have had an experience where you felt dismembered, where you felt like a deep sense of falling asleep, or where you literally slept a lot more, where you had a sense of things falling away and forgetting, like, what was that life of, of you know, that those are like hallmarks that what we're standing on is a threshold of an invitation to go inward. And, you know, in, the, in, in all of the myths, to go in deep inside is also to encounter one's own depths. And there are dragons there, but there is gold. And so that's what I would say, Erin, is that for all of us, it's the journey inward to the depth of the heart and to remembering our past as opposed to going boldly out into the out into the future, that there's this double movement. And of course, we're going to need both. We need contemplation and we need action. We need inward gazing and we need to go out into the world in a creative way. On both the hero and heroine's journey, it seems like the, the protagonist does find themselves ultimately kind of descending into some type of underworld. You know, even if the hero is more of this extroverted expression, mm -hmm. at a certain point, he's also pulled into the depths. But if we look kind of at um, older stories, especially, 
how a hero or how a heroine enters or interacts with the underworld is, is usually quite different. You know, like you have Hercules who's going to battle and wrestle with Cerberus and, and kind of punch his way in. But Psyche will, of course, like charm uh, Cerberus with honey cakes. And she'll things. feed. She yeah, actually she'll feeds feed. the three-headed dog. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You know, that, that, that is the idea of feeding the monster or taming the monster as opposed to cutting the head off is a very, very different thing. You know, it is alarming how many of the heroine's journeys to the underworld involve um, abduction and rape. And especially in any of the, the Greek myths, you know, Persephone is, is the, the, the ultimate example of being dragged down into the underworld. But as I said, Silence of the Lambs and also the Promising Young Woman, it, that theme of abduction is, is everywhere. It's also interesting, especially with, with Persephone, as I consider that, that her being sort of drawn into the underworld ultimately is a kind of like process of reclaiming or sort of taking up the mantle of her space as queen, you know, next to Hades side and allowing there to be this sort of union of opposites now within the underworld space that there could be a masculine and a feminine expression, sort of showing that sense of wholeness. Um, I'm curious if you have any other thoughts just about, you know, the ways in which the heroine can continue to work with the underworld space that isn't that typical hero's path, because that tends to be a little bit of what's maybe more dominant in our culture. It's like, let's fight the beast, let's chop off its head, let's fight the dragon. But how can we embody that heroine in the underworld? Well, I think it's important to frame it um, as an initiation. And to really think about the journey to the underworld as being, you know, my friend and mentor, Francis Weller says this past year has been a year of what he calls rough initiation, the year that we would never have chosen, but that we have to really closely pay attention to what are the gifts of that and what do we need to reclaim and claim from it. And Persephone's journey, um, you know, I think it's very interesting. It is not one-sided. And the end of this initiation is that she goes between worlds. And we find this in so many of the myths, the myth of Inanna as well, that it's only after the descent into the depths of the underworld that, that Inanna is labeled the queen of heaven. And Persephone has this double thing. She goes to the top of the world at springtime. She's the maiden energy, but then she comes down into the underworld and she's the wife, but she's also the queen of the dead. And so I think that that is, is so interesting. And in the Greek world, you know, the, the realm of Hades was also called the realm of the shades. So we would say it's the realm of the shadows. So if we think of that, that we have to do this deep, deep inner excavation work, but that ultimately the journey is to go back and forth. It's not to stay in one place. It's not to be in the castle on the hill. It's to go down into the depths and then come into the light, to go down into the depths and then come into the light. And we see this with the journey of Psyche, who does voluntarily, voluntarily decide to go to Persephone's realm on an initiation journey in order, um, you know, in order to reclaim her fullness, to be reunited with her love. And the secret that Persephone gives her I love this. You know, the secret of beauty is the knowledge of death. And to know both of those is what allows Psyche to then 
become more than mortal. We see that theme over and over. So knowing that it's this double journey and that the trick is not to get stuck in the underworld. You see that theme played out in Pan's Labyrinth too. Don't eat the food. Don't eat, don't eat the food in the underworld. You'll get stuck there. But like, how do we, how do we know how to go in and how to come out? That is the big task. And so all of those great union tools of writing, of journaling, of drama therapy, of painting, you know, those can really serve us in these quests. You mentioned in your presentation about Dionysus um, and that kind of taps us into the theme of being dismembered, but also reborn. And mm -hmm. it's interesting to especially see that through such a powerful figure as Dionysus. Um, could you speak just a little bit more to that, especially with Dionysus as this figure and how he relates to the heroine's journey? Yeah, and he really does in so many ways. And I think that he's a, a, a just a fascinating figure to look at because according to the Orphic myths, you know, he was born three times. And I think it's so interesting that his first, you know, his first gestation was when Zeus comes to Persephone in a cave. So we have those themes and he comes as a snake. So that's Dionysus the first. And then he gets dismembered by the Titans. And the only thing that's left of, Di of little baby Dionysus is his heart. And so then we have the second birth. So the first birth is to the god out of the goddess, the, the female goddess. The second birth, he's incubated in a mortal woman, Semele. But there's this whole trickery that happens and he has to be ripped out. It's like a cesarean birth. He gets ripped out of the womb and then he gets incubated a third time in Zeus's thigh. So if you think of that, what rich mythic territory to be, what is it to, for all of us to be, you know, born of the feminine and then reborn again of the masculine. So you have both of those that, that the, the, the woman, the, the, the human female incubates us, but the, also the divine masculine incubates us. And then he becomes hidden away so he doesn't get dismembered again. He's dressed as a little girl and he's raised on a mountain in the wild, in the woods, and he's raised by a, a group of muses. And so Dionysus is so fascinating because unlike Apollo, who always looks like he's like 24 years old and he's just come out of gold's gym. Dionysus represents this profound diversity. You see him looking like a young girl. You see, can, see him as the green man with the wild beard. There's like this multiplicity to, to him. And he was always known as the, the woman's God. He always has women all around him and music and drama and intoxication from this, it's the spiritual realms, but in an incredibly embodied way that includes dancing and singing is part of his realm. And, you know, I'm not the only mythologist to talk about how Dionysus got demonized and cut out in the West. And many people feel like we've become so left brain and cerebral and we've forgotten what it is to be embodied. We've forgotten what it is to have access to the heart. And so to be reborn of the heart is really, you know, to think of that, you know, to take what's left of whatever happens in the ashes of our life 
you know, this is the great mystical tradition and, and, you know, in Christian mysticism, St. Benedict is like, listen with the ear of your heart, my child, what it is to awaken the eye of your heart and to see with the eyes of your heart. And that's a deep part of this, this process. But I think Dionysus is one of those figures who shows neither male nor female, but, but the, in a weeding together of both capacities, how we need that to be reborn. One thing I'd love to get your insight on is we sometimes see in these old stories, uh, really prominent feminine figures who actions bring something that we might classify as a bit of a destruction or a fall. We could have Pandora opening the box or Eve eating of the apple or the Gnostic Sophia and her fall. And I think sometimes that can sort of be overly simplified to look at the feminine as this figure that brings this type of destructive quality. But in a lot of ways, it's through that uh, action that there's this, this sort of birth of creation of consciousness of wisdom of potential that really springs forth from the feminine. But there's also these kind of darker elements like what's in Pandora's box, like, yes, there's hope, but there's also, you know, destruction and disease and hopelessness. Um, how might we approach some of those themes um, mythically and kind of see the, the deeper aspects, the, the deeper lessons in that? Yes. Um, well, I think one of the things that has been demonized about that again is that you have this idea, whether it's the Garden of Eden where everything is orderly and regulated, and then this wild element comes in and it's, it is the rough initiation for all of us. If we think about how do we know what we really love? Well, we often know it through loss. How do we know what really matters? It's through having our hearts broken, but it would, you know, I think Glennon Doyle talks about this in, uh, in her book and so many others point to it to stop it being broken rather than being broken open. How, we need to reframe that and to move out beyond our own little bubbles. When we are broken open, then we have more desire and urgency. What we experience then is compassion. How can we, how can we come to compassion without this? I, you know, I, as a cultural historian, I, 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 point to Beethoven and Dante. And I say, you know, if Beethoven had lived his well-ordered life where chaos didn't come in, in the form of deafness, he may have been a concert pianist that none of us would remember. If Dante had lived his orderly life being in Florence without that experience that we associate with the feminine path, the first step of betrayal often, um, without that, without that falling experience, again, we wouldn't have the divine comedy. So if we, we have to, I think, and particularly in this cultural moment, look really deeply into our heartbreak and say, what are the seeds inside this broken heart that can be planted and nourished and fed and watered to bear fruit? You know, there's two trees in the Garden of Eden. There is the tree of knowledge, and then there's the tree of life. And how do we find our way to the tree of life? We have to follow the stepping stones that's not just knowledge, but where knowledge gets transmuted into wisdom. And I don't know about you, but many people believe that wisdom doesn't come 
by doing everything right. Wisdom often only comes by making terrible mistakes or realizing the errors of our ways. And, and I think that's part of this dark journey of becoming mature. That is such a hard initiation. And one of the things that we can see mythically, archetypally about our culture is that we're afraid of becoming mature. Culturally, we are arrested. If not, I mean, it would be, we've, what do we value the most? I mean, if you look at, over the past decades, it's only recently changing, but it's like, you know, the 13-year-old girl or the prepubescent girl was the one that was there. I mean, the myth in Hollywood is if you're over 40, you can't get a decent role to play. Because, why? Because we're in love with childhood. We're in love with adolescence. And we're afraid, we're afraid of death, we're afraid of being old, we're afraid of claiming wisdom. And that, that's a piece that I think is really important. This is why, you know, we never see Apollo at the age of 80, but we see, we do see Dionysus as a, a, a big man, you know, with a grizzly beard. You know, what is it to embrace the wisdom of elderhood? And Michael Mead and so many others say, you know, Robert Bly, we, are, we fail our world because we are perpetually fixated on adolescence rather than claiming the dark gifts of being elders. All right, thank you, Kayleen, so much for that discussion. We're gonna move on to the Q&A portion. We just have a few questions. Uh, the first question I'm going to read for M. And the question is, in terms of facing our shadow, how can we offer shelter to one another? Mm, beautiful. Well, I think this is the, the, the place where community becomes really important. And it doesn't have to be big community, but to have you know, a small group in Zoom can actually work remarkably well with this. You know, to have a group of people who commit to an exploration and in exploring, you know, I always love Mary Oliver's lines, you know, tell me about grief yours and I'll tell you mine, you know, and, and to so much of our culture was, and I think this is the gift is that it's cracking right now. But if we think about, you know, the icon of the smiley face and have a nice day, you know, I like to say that nice is a four letter word that Jesus never used. And so that thing about what is real and, and one of the hopeful things that I do see that is transforming more and more is that there is this hunger for what's really authentic. So having a practice group of people who show up and they're, they're not trying to put on their best face, but you take an important question and the other piece about how, how do we tend to this is to acknowledge that none of us, I don't think, I haven't met anyone, has only one opinion about everything, you know, like, like we have these complicated feelings and to be able to acknowledge and say, all of this is how I'm leading with, but then to write the words, but also, or and still, and yet, and to give voice to the smaller voice within, I think is really important. And, and to be able to create, you know, in alchemy, the principle of having a container, 
You can't do it. You can't do it alone. You can't make the transformation alone and you need to have a really safe container. So coming up with a structure where you can share stories. And I think this is something that myth is so great for and myth can be movie. So watching a film, seeing your reaction and then sharing like this really disturbed me or I couldn't stop thinking about or I'm afraid that this character, I can relate to this character and I don't like it and or I feel this part of me. And then when I think we can all relate, I mean, raise your hands and wave. Have you had an experience where somebody's named an impolite truth and inside you thought, oh, thank God, somebody else. Somebody else feels that and it's so liberating. And to go back to, you know, Dionysus, that's part of what it was. You know, the ancient Greeks did have this idea that we needed moments that were safe, that we could show our not pretty sides. You know, there was actually a woman's festival where you would come together and all the Roman matrons were supposed to be so well behaved all year long. They sat around naked and they told naughty jokes and they cursed each other and they had a contest to see who could deliver the best insult. And they did that for one weekend and then they went back to their lives <laughs> you know, of propriety. And, and some of those, you know, figuring out what would that look like? What would that look like? One of the things that I did once that was really fascinating, probably the most important thing for some of my students that, that we've ever done, we had a shadow party and we took the person that we, a person or a type of person that we, that just drove us crazy. And we literally had to show up in costume as that person and for an hour be that person and then write a letter to ourselves from that person saying what I want you to know is or what you don't see is. And I can tell you that exercise was one of the most powerful experiences of learning that I and my students ever encountered. So I would encourage you to all consider doing that. Have a shadow party and see what shows up and then have people that you can talk to about that. And if you want to make it really fun, you actually make cookies that look like you're a shadow and then you eat your shadow for real. <laughs> Thank you, Kayleen. Um, we have another audience question. This is from Yaj. Did you want to unmute yourself and ask your question directly? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I, I'd always look at the hero's journey as uh, when you go on the hero's journey, the hero finds um, a feminine ally that helps him on the journey. And then you come to the conclusion and you start the cycle again. On the feminine journey, you had mentioned that it's the healing of the wounded masculine. Do these both happen um, mutually exclusively? Because for me as a cis male, I've always imagined that the journey out is how my ego gets formed, my hero's journey. And then like Campbell was saying, later on in your life, you go within, but I'm yeah. guessing that's not actually the case or is it, could you say a bit it, more? Well, it can be both. I think a great example of that, yes, uh, would be um, Parsifal. And, you know, in Parsifal's journey, um, his journey of healing, you know, the, the, he, he is a figure who has to go through all of this, but then he heals the wounded masculine, right? You know, when he asked the question, what ails you? You know, and that journey of compassion is there. Um, I think that 
that there's such an interesting piece right now. I know there's a tendency in certain circles um, of moving from what I would call the patriarchy to the hatriarchy and just saying, oh, forget men. You know, that's part of the, the shadow side. But I think they have to work together. You know, the masculine and the feminine coming together as allies. And even if it's done in a clunky way, you know, the Skywalker saga points to that. It's like she finds her strength in connecting and also healing this figure of Kylo Ren. She literally, she wounds him and she heals him within just a few minutes together. And she finds her identity. She finds the clues to who she is in relationship with him. And so, you know, one of the things that I think Avatar was pointing to, that's another film in which we have the wounded masculine. Yes, there's a hero's journey where he starts off and he's a soldier being recruited to do one kind of, you know, battle where he wins and he ends up instead taking the heroine's journey where he connects to the earth, to the land, he's healed, he wakes up and he's neither black nor white, but he's blue, you know? I mean, he becomes, and I I think it's interesting and signifies that he's much larger when he he actually embraces that identity that's a a journey of side by side, of, of cooperation and mutual nurturing. And I, I would hope, I, I think the salvation of our planet and world depends on that, of both, of not just going within, but also taking action, you know? Teresa of Avila had this quote. She said, I don't want my nuns just to be good. I want them to be good for something. And we, we need that desperately. Yes, you know, action without contemplation can become violence very easily. Contemplation without action can become self-indulgence. So we need both desperately in our world. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it it did, thank you. And I love that you brought in that, you know, you became blue because I'm thinking about, I was raised Hindu and Krishna is typically blue and it's neither masculine nor feminine, but he's supposed to be mid, it's supposed to be midnight black, but it, it's neither. So that gives even more meaning for me. Thank you. That's helpful. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. And one of the things I love about the Hindu tradition is you have the pairing, you have Shiva and Shakti, and you have so, like the Ardhanari sculpture is so fascinating because it's half male and half female. For those of you who don't know it, there's one eye closed looking inward and one eye open, looking outward. It's it's a fantastic image. Um, and it's called Ardhanari, A-R-D-H-A-N-A-R-I. And what a fantastic and potent image it is for developing our fullness or, you know, what's called in the Gnostic tradition, our anthropos, our full humanity that includes masculine and feminine action and contemplation and how desperately we need that. I mean, we are a dismembered world where cultures and individuals are just lopping off all kinds of parts of themselves. Can you time? Do you have a, do you have time for one more question? Sure. Okay. Uh, this question is from Christine. If she wants to unmute herself, otherwise I can read the question for her. Christine, well, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Um, okay. I, I was just wondering, I'm trying to do the video too. I was anyway, it 
Okay, anyway, um, when you were talking about the heroine's journey, so much of the time is being one of a abduction and rape. I was wondering if there was a redemptive tale or a redemptive viewpoint to redeem this, uh, this occurrence. Well, I think that, that that is what Persephone is ultimately about when she becomes the queen of the underworld, even though um, the abduction begins in total violence, she ultimately takes what's known as the throne of wisdom. And in the psyche journey, um, which I'll be teaching on in a, a full workshop on May 22nd, you know, Psyche's last task is that she has to go before Persephone and find what is the secret of beauty because Psyche, uh, because Persephone knows something about true beauty, true beauty on this throne of wisdom that not even Aphrodite knows, you know, the, the so-called goddess of beauty. And I think that, that that's part of it. And again, you know, the, the redemptive part is to learn to go between the worlds and to be able to take the wisdom of the shadows of the past. And in Persephone's journey, then she's the, also the goddess of springtime. It's when she emerges from the underworld that life bursts into bloom, that flowers come, that the fruit of the trees comes because this, this I think is an intimate relationship between those two things going and, and, and uh, transmuting the alchemical journey of transmuting trauma into wisdom. Mm. Mm. And that's the call I think for all of us right now, for all of us. Because I don't think I know of a single person who wouldn't say they're not suffering from some form of PTSD. Okay, we're going to go ahead and just close out our event. Um, Kayleen, is there any upcoming events that you'd like to tell us about? Mm -hmm. Any announcements? Yeah. Yeah. So um, my company Mythica is doing two things on an ongoing basis. The first is every month we do a three-day virtual pilgrimage where we go to a place, uh, a sacred site of that's connected with different kinds of myth and lore. And there's gorgeous art, photography, and practices that are informed by Jungian depth psychology. So the next one is actually next weekend, May 1st through 3rd, we're going to step a foot into the mythical realm of Avalon in Glastonbury, England, going from Stonehenge and then encountering some of these stories. And it touches on this integration, the central theme, central symbol of Glastonbury is this union of opposites known as the Vesica Pisces that's at Chalice Well, which was the site of Joseph of Arimathea and Holy Grail legends. And then on May 22nd will be a heroine's quest workshop. And this next one is going to be on psyche and the tasks of psyche and how incredibly important it is for each of us to claim those. So for the rest of the year, every month, there'll be a one day heroine's quest workshop and men are welcome to come on that too. And then later in the summer, I'm going to be partnering on the theme of the grail quest with um, some of my most cherished masculine friends and teachers 
teachers and actually a couple of them are on this call, Doug Von Koss and Hari Myers, great storytellers to bring the masculine and the feminine together to talk about what do we need to do to heal our wasteland right now? And that it is this collective journey of remembrance and recovering the ability to speak from the heart. So if you want to sign up to know more about those, you can go to my website on KayleenAsbo.com and then other things to come on Gnosticism and various saints and sinners feast days throughout the year. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kayleen. Thank you for coming today and sharing so much wisdom. Everyone, let's give Kayleen a muted round of applause. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And we've got some more events coming up here at Golden Shadow on Friday, May 7th. We will be joined by Anderson Todd, who will be talking about Jung, alchemy, and the Philosopher's Stone. We'll be doing our own exploration on mythology May 8th uh, with Vasilisa the Wise, so a deep dive into the mythos and symbolism behind the story. And um, Dr. Cadell Lass will also be joining us Sunday, May 23rd for an exploration of Jungian versus Freudian theory. So... If you'd like more information, head over to goldenshadow.org for more details. Thank you, everybody. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadoworg. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events, or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.